Hello and welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. My name's Colin Williams. At this point, I would normally be introducing my fellow podcaster, Ian Rowlands. But Ian is unavailable for this episode, so I sit here alone, recording this in the darkness of my study. Imagine the cover of Donald Fagan's classic album, The Nightfly, and you'll get the idea. The birdsong that you just heard was recorded in the shepherd's hut on Walnut Tree Farm, which the world came to know through the timeless writing of Roger Deakin. It was recorded by today's guest, the writer Dan Richards. I first met Dan when I interviewed him on stage at the Wealdon Literature Festival a few years ago on the release of his last book, Climbing Days, in which he follows in the crampon tracks of his great-aunt, the legendary climber Dorothy Pilly. Before that, Dan had explored the artistic process in the Beechwood Airship interviews and delivered up the brilliant and arresting Holloway along with Robert McFarlane and Stanley Donwood. Beneath the Stream has wanted to explore the theme of wilderness for a while now, and Dan's latest book, Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth, does just that. In Outpost, Dan travels to the Arctic Circle, the deserts of the Midwest, the forests of Washington State, and the bodies of Scotland, amongst others, seeking to understand what place wilderness held in his mind, what it means in our imagination, and the place it takes in the world's cultures. Outpost explores desolation, loneliness, and the impact and sometimes futility of the human dream of exploration. And it's a wonderful book. So I went to his home in the West Country to talk Outpost, Kerouac, and of course, Ziggy Stardust. Dan Richards, welcome to Beneath the Stream. Thank you for having me. Hello. Um... Congratulations on Outpost. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. With your previous book, Climbing Days, and and certainly the way Outpost begins, you seem to be drawn to retreading paths that have been trodden by those before you, whether it's your family or whether it's writers or artists. Is that a conscious, a conscious thing or is it a sense of pilgrimage? Or I don't know, really. I think I'm drawn to try and see lives and works that I am interested in or love in the round in some way. Um, I think that actually going to a place, um, getting the sense of a place, getting the feel for where something happened, perhaps it's this idea of witness. I think certain buildings or certain landscapes bear witness to certain ideas or certain ventures or certain people and I'm certainly fascinated by the human traces that we leave behind and um, I think a lot of the time what starts out as quite a low-key interest because you know books kind of creep up on me I don't know if it's the same for other people you start out thinking this might be an interesting tangent and then you follow on you follow on a bit and then you find yourself reading a lot of books in that area and then you find yourself booking train tickets and going somewhere and then suddenly you're in an archive um, and you suddenly think oh blimey I'm writing a book um, and certainly with the outpost book it, it, it did sort of creep up on me and that idea of you know, when you come back to your car and it's that certain time of year and you find all the pollen on it really thick, I felt that kind of happening to me. These ideas were settling on me and in the end, I either had to sort of like properly dust myself off and go, no, I'm definitely not going to do a book like this or just kind of go with it. And in Outpost, the discovery or rediscovery moving back home of the polar bear pelvis, my dad's artifact from Svalbard, the feeling that this artifact almost embodied a moment in time just before I was born when my dad was out there venturing in the Arctic and using that as a springboard to kind of unpack this idea of, uh, in some ways, what life was like without me and then using it to go forward and talk about that idea in the broader sense of what the world would be like without us as this incredibly invasive species that we are Um, and seeing what impact similar objects or landscapes or buildings have had on other people um it all kind of began to coalesce into this idea and then when you have that kindling of an idea you kind of have to feed it and follow it and that's really how that came to be and you uh, picking up on what you said about what 
the world would have what the world would be like without you without us you come full circle there don't you and towards the close of your book you are you speculate about that great contradiction that great need you felt during your whole journey to go to these places experience these places and you end up in the arctic um experiencing polar bear and the you know, I, I know from experience that, that seeing animals like that are their kinetic and dynamic experiences. And so for, while you're while you're living them, they're all that matters. You're you're, you're right there in the moment. Mm. Your your reflection is that um, you don't want the rest of the world to in, invade their world and and in, and invade those those remaining bits of wilderness. I think it is a contradiction. I mean. The, the trouble is, of course, the great irony of all this is we already have. We it may not it doesn't have to be, you know, people on snowmobiles going out and bothering polar bears. We've already bothered the polar bears to the extent where, you know, we're now in an era we've bothered them to the extent there's no ice for them. We've bothered them to the extent where they've got less to eat and um, are living in a fundamentally changed world through no fault of their own where they're having to change their behaviour, this hardwired behaviour. And, you know, you could say, oh, isn't it interesting the polar bears are bothering us more now, but actually their options have dwindled because the ice has dwindled. Svalbard, where I went, I think I read recently, is heating, warming at four times the global average. You know, it's really a hot spot for that kind of thing. And so, yes, it puts me in a bind as a writer who writes what is often classified as travel writing, a travel writer who writes about the wonders of travel and then says to his readers, I prefer you didn't go, is a bit like a sort of gourmand who sort of like eats all the foie gras and then goes, but it's terribly cruel, you really shouldn't do this. It's delightful, but no. But the point being that I'm travelling to some very delicate places in the Outpost book, these wild places that are meant at least in the human imagination, to be, um, you know, savage places that withstand and face down any attempt of sort of taming them by human beings. And unfortunately, they're having their edges taken off, um, not by great conquering, you know, heroic parties of explorers, but the fact that everyone drives cars thousands of miles away. Um, the fact that, you know, we have tipped the balance of how the earth is going. So there's a lot of that in the book. And there is a lot of wishful thinking on my part that there were less of us and that we did less harm and that we took more responsibility and that at a global level people admitted what was going on rather than trying to equivocate everything to death until the next administration comes in and they can tidy up the mess. Mm. So... There's a balance here, and I'm. I try and be fair, but there's a lot of anger in the book when you go and you see how things are, and, you know, I'm responsible. You're responsible. We're all responsible, but we should take responsibility. That's at the heart of the book, I think. The kind of call to take responsibility and own what you do, and if that's going to Svalbard, fine. But you should try and take dogs rather than snowmobiles. You should try to limit your footprint be it carbon or whatever um wherever you are on earth and that's difficult because sometimes there's no way of doing that if you go but that's something sometimes you have to learn by going and then mm. regretting and, mm. that's, and that's in the book so i want to dive back into the journey itself and why you started it and and, and why you made these uh, I'm going to use the word pilgrimages if if that's okay. Sure. Uh, you visited Desolation Peak amongst other things, and I, I was fascinated by that because first and firstly, Kerouac is a writer I adore, and I, I read On the Road when I was 16. And anything you read or listen to when you're 16 sure. um, is going to sink in um, and have an impact. And fa- famously. Jack Kerouac wrote that first draft way back in 1951 on that big single roll of paper and when it came to trying to unsuccessfully sell that to publishers 
legend has it, he said, there can be no edits because it was dictated by the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. Desolation Peak, the other places you visit, are they? do you believe there are places where, um, that I, I guess the kind of uh, religious connotations of the word Holy Ghost aside, are, are they places that where writers can give themselves up to something other, something different? Did you feel that? Does it exist? I think there are certainly places where they're other, and so much of this is whether you or they are open. You know, there's that Picasso quote, um, inspiration does exist, but it must find you working. And I think a lot of the outposts that I visited that were creative were really um, places where people could open themselves up and work and places that imported a bit of that Spartan sort of fairly fundamental sort of simplicity. This um, Thoreau's Walden, where he describes himself caged amongst birds, you know, just enough architecture to make uh, the difference between inside and outside, you know, obvious enough to, you know, some shelter, things like that. Um, I visited Roald Dahl's writing hut, or rather the... um, the reimagining of that, because they've taken the innards of the place where Roald Dahl wrote for several decades and they've um, moved it into a museum and they built a new chassis shed to the exact dimensions of Roald's shed and they treated it very much like a sacred shrine in a way. Mm. They took up all of the lino and froze all the ashtrays with their cigarettes still as he had left them. Um... And now people can go and they can see this, you know, place, this seat, the seat of the writer. Um, and it's interesting to people, but it's fairly almost um, surgical in the way it's been done, perhaps. You know, you have this glass wall, which isn't to make it sound like it isn't worthwhile and it isn't wonderful. It is wonderful, but you just know to look into that space or the reimagined version of that space, a bit like the painter... Bacon's space was kind of reinterred in in Ireland. Um, there was a lot of mess there. There was a lot of, you know, human complication that has almost been edited out inevitably by the fact that person isn't there anymore. With Desolation Peak, it's still very much a working mm. lookout. Mm. When I went there, I met Jim Henterley, um, who is still the current uh, fire lookout on top of this mountain in the North Cascades. Um, of Washington State and you hike up there but the building itself is the building and the mountain itself is the mountain and you know that Kerouac was there and he worked there and so in a lot of the places I went I felt I was almost paying my respects to the situation in the several senses of that word yeah I was putting myself in the shoes of people who'd gone before but also I had made the effort to actually go and consider the reality as opposed to the myth because of, you know, Kerouac was a magician of myth. Um, He reinvented himself so many times. He reinvented single incidents into several books. In the case of Desolation Peak, um, when you read his writings of the time and then his subsequent um, recapitulations of that, he is trying to make it make sense and trying to make himself seem a better fit for his posting. Um, In fact, shall I read a bit? Please do, yeah. So, he was there, I think he was there in 1955, and a year to the day that he left, um, On the Road was published. And I know that he had a lot of difficulty with the silence, you know, of being on his own. Um... Because I think one of the moving things that I discovered was that a lot of the struggle that Kerouac experienced being up um, on top of the mountain, it wasn't the gnats, it wasn't the cold or anything like that. It was actually being alone with himself um, and having no one but himself to face. Here we go. Um, In Fire Season by Philip Connors. He lists the enduring qualifications and qualities needed to be a wilderness lookout based on his own experience and the writings and reminiscences of Jack Kerouac, Gary Schneider, Edward Abbey 
and Norman MacLean. One, not blind, deaf or mute, must be able to see fires, hear the radio, respond when called. Two, capability, capability for extreme patience while waiting for smokes. Three, one good arm to cut wood. Four, two good legs for hiking to a remote post. Five, ability to keep oneself amused. And he goes on, but Jack Kerouac's name, that tops that roll call, and he probably ticked about half of that list. And yet Kerouac is the fire watch poster boy. It's Kerouac who, in Connor's words, mined desolation for two novels, The Derma Bums and Desolation Angels. But I don't think Kerouac ever really let it go. He reworked the experience repeatedly in retrospect, trying to make it right, anxious to retrofit resolution and significance. I imagine him sat up there at night, sadly bemused that he wasn't enjoying his post, that he seemed so temperamentally unsuited to his task, this pillar-saint position he felt he ought to be owning, gazing over the dark gulf at the horned shadow of Mount Hosamine, rubbing his eyes, refocusing on his own face in the black mirrors of the glass, very much alone on his mountaintop, his cross, less sage than martyr. A still night and cold, hard cold, stars unknown, the radio is silent, no fire or light for miles but his own, the pot-belly stove all purr and tick, he's wrapped up, hunched over his desk, pencil scratching, mice skittering, bugs tapping at the lamp, cigarette smoke pooling in the green cabin eaves, the cigarettes he'd radioed a plea for two weeks in, hangdog and sheepish, talking to himself as he walked down the trail past all the trees and plants he could not name. A couple of hours back to the lake, where the Ross Dam ranger boat was waiting with coffee and cigarettes, company and conversation. They took him round the lake with them, a night back on the float, a hamsteak dinner, then they dropped him back to the trailhead, a one-pound tin of Prince Albert tobacco under his arm, feeling better, but also like he'd failed, been humoured, back up to the summit, city boy, couldn't do without smokes, couldn't do on his own, he dreamt of this for years, and he was fucking it up, no liquor, no drugs, no chance of faking it, but face to face with hateful delotes me, as he'd later write. in or one of the backbones of outpost being you traveling to these remotest of places um, that either uh, were your own uh, your own need or somebody had been there before you um, you were almost never alone um, so and and that and, and and the part of the book where you talk about visiting desolation peak and Kerouac's lookout um, you of course there with a there with a friend and and you met as you said you met you met the guy who was currently the lookout there. Um, was it was that about company? Was it about safety? Uh, was it about were you worried about being on your own in these places? I think a mix of um, trying to be expedient in as much as I don't drive and, and um, <laughs> the chapter that follows the Desolation Peak chapter. I am on my own for quite a lot of it. And um, there's some hitching that goes on in Utah, where I describe myself as like Hugh Grant stumbled onto a set of No Country for Old Men, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I am quite pleased with as, as, a, as a description because it was very apt, you know, to be in a country that's utterly both enthralled but also reliant on the motor car. You know, trains yeah. in America are mainly for coal and oil and things like that. Um, but... In terms of being alone, all the writing took place alone, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. So it all has to go through that filter of trying to make sense of what's happened, as all of our experiences do. Um, I don't know I'm that good on my own in terms of uh, having a great time. I am quite sociable. 
It doesn't mean I'm not socially awkward, as uh, many people would tell you I am. But I think a lot of the time when I was writing the book, I was trying to be the big eye and the big ear. You know, I was trying to take it all in to go back to what we were talking about just earlier. I was trying to open myself up and really get a a handle, but also trying to be very much alive to what was going on around me so that I could give the readers, and I guess what I mean is fill the book with the electricity of lived experience, the excitement that you get from being in a massive thunderstorm in the Kangal Mountains, but, you know, it's it's incredibly dark apart from these cobalt blue flashes. Um, to be in a lighthouse off the coast of France in the North Atlantic on a fairly calm day, but be talking to a man who's been up there in, I think, 200 kilometre an hour winds he was talking about. And think I think of myself writing as a, as a kind of conduit mm. in that way. I want to be... Uh, the person who can take you to the place where I was and almost get out of the way. I want you to have almost first-hand um, some sort of fidelity um, to actually feel that you are in touch with something unexpected, but something real and something powerful, because that's what I felt in a lot of these places. And if you go to the middle of Iceland and you work on bothies that they have out there, these sale house, and you're not from Iceland, but you're working with Icelandic people, but you're from, you know, the UK, you are basically on your own. You have you're this little, um, you know, flag on a map. You know, you're kind of trying to communicate with people, also represent yourself, represent what you're doing. I think when I travel, I'm an observer, but often I try and keep myself relatively neutral. Mm. Um, so to let people around me talk, because the worst thing is to go and just go seeking confirmation of things you already think, I think. I try and go and open myself up and discover things. And that works best when you are quiet and watching and listening and all of this and trying to get in touch with something. And during the book, that something is sometimes the people I meet, it's sometimes the place, it's sometimes just the sound of a landscape or the colours of a landscape or the temperatures or the smells. And then you try and put that on the page and make it work. And all of that stuff happens when you're on your own. So the writing process is inevitably quite solitary. And perhaps, to answer your question, when I go out and I am in company, it's as an antidote to the inevitable solitude I know that I'm going to face as soon as I get back and I open all my notebooks and they're the records of uh, interaction. Um, and then I have to kind of try and translate that onto this into this blank page. That, that's splendid, Dan. And, and I, I wonder then, some, something you said there and something you reflected on where you talked about these places or, or we should allow these places to change us. Mm. Um. Do all of these experiences um, with perhaps um, loneliness, solitude, being in a place um, where, where you are um, away from your uh, as away from your normal life as it's possible to be? Do you believe those things um, assimilate to change our view forever? Do, do do they still sit with you? Those things do are they? Are they lots of lenses piling up on top of one another to, to give you new views? Or are they are those experiences short-lived? I think, well, there's certainly the thing called the overview effect. When you go to places, I mean, the most extreme being space. People have been to space and seen the Earth at one remove, you know. They have a different perspective on what being a human being, an Earthling, is like. Because the spectator, in that sense, has seen more of the game. Um and in the sense of going to somewhere like the Arctic, where suddenly you see, as you were saying, the the wondrous kind of um, monochrome of it. And at the same time, the amount of life there, the amount of interactions that are going on, these whole alien worlds that perhaps you'd never considered. But then an alien world, I think a lot of people don't consider, is disconnection. 
mm. you know, is to live in a solitary way. Very few people do that now. Very few people are allowed to do that now with the surfeit of connection that we have, most of which is probably wonderful and very positive to people. But the idea of solitude, it's almost become from being something to be avoided. It's something now that I think a lot of people will and they wish that they had more solitude. They wish that they had time to think because we're bombarded in the world with information, with um, content. It's wonderful, terrifying word, content. And um, I think to have the space to think, to make up your mind, to change your mind, um, it's quite terrifying, the idea that people need to have an opinion about everything all the time. And then if they change that opinion, they are seen as in some way, um, you know, weak or flip-flopping, as if, you know, to be dogmatic is somehow to be, um, you know, strong. We live in a world where I think that that's on the rise and this kind of idea of um, fundamentalist views um, is hugely prob problematic and hugely damaging. Um, to go to places that um, challenge accepted wisdom and views at a fundamental level that challenge the view that we live in a sort of homocentric world. Um, I mean, that might be the case in terms of the damage being wrought. In fact, you know, fundamentally it is. Um, but the fact that that is correct and the right way to think about the world, a lot of the places I visited challenge that fundamentally, be it going to Japan, where I went to mountain shrines and temples that have, you know, the Shinto religion is nature worship, mm. um, you know, this animism um, which I think is fundamentally very he um, helpful and very respectful. It's similar to the way that the Icelandic people think um, with their hulda folk and their kind of um, respect for nature. One of the things that really struck me writing the book was a very Scandinavian um, perspective, which I feel should be universal, which is that nature is not somewhere you choose to visit. Nature is somewhere you live. And the city is nature and the wonderful pastoral constable-esque landscapes are also nature. But most people don't live there, mm. thankfully. And um, we need to get this idea of perspective and we need to, you know, have a sense of place and sense of responsibility and sense of self. So um, in terms of the book, Changing My Mind, that was really helpful and, and um, welcome. And hopefully the book will get people thinking along different lines because it's so easy to go through and just have this confirmation bias and nod and pat yourself on the back for being correct mm. um, in whatever, you know, in whatever you believe. I like to be challenged in that way. So when you were in these places when you and and I was conscious that um I I'm I'm being careful not to slip into these places as destinations because you know your yeah. your the getting there was was as important for you and as as important to the book in traveling to those places or through those those open spaces and uh, arriving at uh, uh at your goal um did you respond as you were expecting to or was everything a surprise I think I was always pleased to be there. Um, it might sound strange, but a lot of the places I went, it did involve quite a lot of logistics to get there, but I didn't research the actual visual identity or, or, or I didn't, I didn't do research into what it felt like to be there. Um, I would, for example, the Mars chapter, was based on the cover of a magazine that I'd seen and I thought that looks amazing I'd like to go there and then my whole focus became about finding a way of getting to this place and, and I did a bit of research on the place this Mars Desert research, research station in Utah um, but I wanted to almost keep from myself the um, specifics of other people's experience of being there and I wanted to keep some visual surprise 
for the moment where you turn the corner and there it is. So I only ever saw a couple of places. Once I decided to go to these places, I only ever saw a couple of places and often I'd stick with the same pictures. I wouldn't put it into Google search and look for all the perspectives. I would think, right, I want to go here. This looks amazing. And I'd have a couple of pictures where it looked amazing um, or fulfilled an element in the book because I didn't want things to overlap too much. So the Scottish Bothies may seem like they would be similar to the Icelandic sailhouse, but they weren't really mm. because the landscape was so different and also the stories behind those dwellings and um, stations along the way were so different. You might think that a lookout cabin on top of a mountain would be very similar to the sort of alpine um, huts that I'd stayed in in the Alps, but they couldn't really have been more different. Um, and a lighthouse, well, how you know, how special could a particular lighthouse be? How different is one lighthouse from another? Well, as it turns out, incredibly different. And I really struck um, sort of lighthouse gold with Cordon off the coast of France because the reason I went there was that I was looking for a lighthouse that is still operational at sea because I think marine lighthouses are incredibly interesting mm. and they're that much further away. In terms of your question of where all the places uh, did I respond, um, I kept surprises for myself, in a way, which I really liked. It was a bit, little bit like um, being a member of one of these book clubs that you can have now where they send you something they think you'll like, but it's a surprise, and you've paid for it, and then it comes through the post, and there it is. Um, and it's somebody who knows you. I was almost doing that sort of thing for myself. Right. And hopefully also for future readers. Because I don't really write books with readers in mind. I'm writing myself the book that I want to read. Mm. And then when it comes to the writing and editing process, mainly uh, bef um, this happens before my editor sees it, I will decide if it's a bit niche and a bit, you know, it can be up my street. But if it's up my street, kneeling, shouting through my letterbox, up my stairs to where I am standing, that's too niche. Street, yes. Shouting up the stairs, no. So I put a couple of filters on this, and I think, well, I think we need something a little bit more, you know, every man right. than just my greatest hits of things I'd like to see. Well, well and that's interesting that you, um, not saying you chose a lighthouse for that reason, but um, I'm, I know that lighthouses aren't a universal experience, but I think for a lot of people, there's a great weight. There's a great. Uh, weight of stories attached to mm. lighthouses and and there's one particular story by Ray Bradbury called the Foghorn which I'm particularly fond of when you mention lighthouses to people they automatically go to loneliness and solitude and um, silence and and the uh, a bit like you you talk about at Desolation Peak a an almost monastic approach to the work that has to be done. Mm. And as you were talking about, as, you, as I was reading about Desolation Peak in your book, I also thought about the the short story, short ghost story by Charles Dickens, The Signalman. Yeah. And, and in there, it is it is about the loneliness and it is about the solitude, but it's also about the rhythm of the signalman's work and the yeah. things he has to do all the time and, and that they happen at a particular time and he has to do them in a particular way. Mm. Um, but to go back to what you were saying before, the, I mean, the irony of all of this, the irony of the idea of solitude with a lot of outposts and beacons is they are systems of connection. Mm. So one thing I discovered by going to the lighthouse um, in the North Atlantic of France was how connected that is and how it um, is part of a network of other beacons um, and how it has been so for centuries. And how Kerouac, up in his, you know, I've described it as being like a martyr um, up on his sort of pillar, um, he was, he could have been connected. Um, he could have done it differently. But I think a lot of, there's a lot of pride involved there and also a lot of not knowing how to behave. Um, and it's the same in life, I think. A lot of people who are isolated have perhaps started out being embarrassed about a situation and then it is, you know, um, there's a little bit of larking in the book, but, you know, it's deepened like a coastal shelf. And um, people begin to get into these systems of behaviour, isolating and isolated systems of behaviour, and they've gone past the point where they can ask for help. Um, and I think that's sort of 
behavior is heightened um, when you're in a somewhere that's geographically um, you know far flung where um, you need to take the opportunity to see people when you can you need to take the opportunity to get in touch because there are many people who have had the most amazing um, imaginative lives and lives of correspondence in these places and um, there are many who have decided that they're going to go and that it's going to be good for them to kind of like tough it out and all of that stuff and almost punish themselves by going to these places and I think my attitude is very much how does this connect to my experience how does this place connect to other similar places how do I connect perhaps to my friend who I've gone with how are we different here than we would be if we were walking down you know a uh, street in central London because often when you go to the extremity in the same way that a lot of sci-fi is out in space and you know seems to be about the enormity of the universe often it boils down to individual relationships in extreme situations that was really the case when I visited Mars where I discovered that the Mars base they have in Utah is far from being a hyper glitzy scientific NASA style establishment a lot of it's sociological. It's mm. dealing with people mm. about how do, will people survive um, sensory deprivation for months and years on end? How do people deal with risk? How do people relate to each other when you put in a social or a military style or a scientific hierarchy? Um, and again, to go back to your question of what did I learn, so many of these places... They have their own power, but when you put people in these places, the way people respond, it gives, um, uh, it lights them, if you like, in a in a whole new way. Often it is the story around, um, for example, the sale house with the ghosts. You have these records of people going over centuries and experiencing something um, paranormal, perhaps, or is that just... Uh, people going to places and knowing that this is a haunted place you're going for and so it's uh you know you get into this confirmation mm. kind of like whirlpool where mm. you know people write about ghosts because they went to a haunted place and they didn't want to not experience a ghost that was contradicted when i went because stefan who's a very uh tough solid non um i don't want to say he's not romantic he's certainly very straightforward not fanciful he's not fanciful exactly yeah, he's yeah. not a fanciful man um he is very practical man he had a, a horrible experience um a sort of inception style dream within dream within dream um which i document in the book so you don't often have to always have to go looking for the adventure or looking for the unusual sometimes these things find you uh, be that in relationships with people or relationships with something other. Uh, but the key thing, I think, is to go. But as to how you go and where you go, I leave that open to the reader. You know, what do you need? Where are you going? You know, mm. because it's different for everyone. Did Were there moments where um, your response to those things, did you did you have any negative responses. I know you had some fairly miserable moments you talk about in Scotland where it was wet, yes. it was cold. But were there were there any real psychological negative moments that, that, that came up during your journeys? I think I've tried to put them all in the book. Mm. I don't think there was anything vast and world shattering and unspoken that didn't make it into the book. I mean to the extent that when I was in Suffolk staying in um Roger Deakins' uh, Shepherd's Hut. Um, that experience happened at a time when I was fairly heartbroken and fairly just sad, really. And in the Icelandic chapter, I had the most extraordinary, brief experience of being a sounding board for a lady who was going to see her brother. Um, after many years of separation and she began talking to me about how she wasn't Icelandic but she didn't feel German anymore and she felt she'd lost touch with people and that was her fault and it was one of the great regrets of her life that doesn't go in a normal book because it doesn't really fit but actually it happened to me there and it made a profound impression and so it does go in because 
it was of that place. Following the book to see what it wants to be. And yes, I'm in all my books. But as I said earlier, I, I try and be the conduit. I try and shut up, believe it or not, as much as possible and let the people I meet talk and the landscape talk and the stories talk and the history talk um, and form that into some sort of interesting, um, bigger thing that is the book. I wanted to ask about Roger Deakins' um, Shepherd's Hut. Um, uh, t- two things, really. And the first one was, um, and maybe maybe a bit like Kerouac's um, uh, Lookout, although you weren't you weren't living or sleeping in Kerouac's Lookout. Could you operate there, or, or was there was the weight of who had been there and what had happened there before a, a, a bit too great? It's not a reliquary, r- Walnut Tree Farm. Titus, uh, who now lives there, had recently done some work. He had re um, sort of. Uh, carpented the inside tongue and groove it was all together i think it was slightly more threadbare and um careworn in roger's day i still had roger's chair which is fundamentally a very uncomfortable um and fairly dangerous uh canvas chair um and what the only reason i couldn't really work uh, was because the chair was at the wrong height for the desk <laughs> and the desk was at a slight wonky angle um, and there were too many things going on, even though um, I was there to do a bit of writing. I was also there to do research, so I was listening to the birds outside. I was feeding my little potbelly stove. Um, there's a brilliant horsehair bed, mattress, where I slept for a couple of nights. And it was a great place. I could absolutely work there if I had a different chair. Um, and I think a change of air, a change of place, a change of desk is sometimes quite a useful thing so I can see why people travel around one of the places I write best is on on a train so actually moving through landscape uh, but I can't write on planes I've discovered um, but I know other people who can um, Nicky Wire from the Mannix once told me that he writes really well on planes because he feels in close proximity to death uh, but you know maybe his driver is the same thing that kind of like you know uh, is, is, is putting me off I don't know <laughs> will you read something else from Outpost for us sure um, in the early stages of writing this book I was filled with hope that I would reach Neolicent as those of you who followed me through earlier chapters will know I usually get to the places I set my heart on I fly, hitch, walk, sail call up Utah raptor experts I've not seen since university Apparently impossible journeys take slightly longer than very difficult ones, but I usually get my outpost. But Oscar Tuland was a bridge too far. Neolicent itself is difficult but not unattainable. Cruise ships occasionally stop there in summer to let people disembark, stretch their legs, post a card from the world's most northerly post office and visit the world's most northerly museum and shop. The problem was getting permission to walk out and explore the landscape beyond the town, which is a highly protected area of global scientific interest. It's not possible to fly into Neolicent without permission. Neolicent is a company town, a closed community of research scientists. Nick Cox, the man in charge of the UK Arctic Research Station at 78 degrees and 55 minutes north, a man of unwavering politeness and patience, who I emailed a lot in the several years of this book's gestation, was very helpful and identified Tim's shed, my father's shed, as being a cabin named Jenzebu, but summed the situation up in an email of November 2017. Dear Dan, the International Station primarily conducts environmental research, I think I mentioned in earlier correspondence, securing permission for non-scientific projects can be difficult. I'm sorry access to Janzebu Hut is not straightforward. Could I describe my plan in detail on a Natural Environment Research Council station application form, he asked, offering to circulate and discuss it with his approval team and key international partners. I couldn't. My odyssey was non-scientific in the extreme. The idea of filling in the form made me wince. The part where I explained that my trip was inspired by my father's purloining of a polar bear 
pelvis in 1982 would doubtless raise a few eyebrows at NERC Towers. Oh great, they surely think. Let's absolutely have the pillock progeny of the Congresfjord and pelvis napper back to break his neck down a few of our crevasses. If the problem had just been the presence of bears, I could probably have found a couple of guides with guns and we could have gone exploring. Indeed, I did sound a few out. Ronald, one of the guides, had stayed there one winter, his partner told me. He found it very small. Some evenings, I'd call up Neolison on Google Earth and slowly scan along, panning east, until I got to the junction of Kongsbreen and Kongsvegen, where Janzebu apparently still stood. Beyond my Zoom capabilities, but there, down there, somewhere. The fact that glaciers were in such poor condition and declining so fast, the brutal costs of getting there and hiring two guides, the time and organisation involved, together with the moral questions of whether I should be going to such a vulnerable ecosystem, I would surely be damaging. Such a trivial project in the face of that. After a while I accepted that Jenzebu would remain beyond me, as it always had a place my father once visited before I was born. Now more than ever I marvelled that he'd been at all, and perhaps it's fitting that this book ends with the realisation that some places are beyond us. Out with, as the Scots say, not because they're physically unreachable, but because they're so delicate you should not go. The worst thing I could do to celebrate Jenzebu and Oscar to land would be to fly or sail there, burning money I really didn't have on jet fuel and diesel to explore a melting world, thereby damaging it further. It would be utterly callous. My father had been there at a tipping point. In the winter of 1982, there was ice a metre thick on Kongersfjorden. In the winter of 2017, there is none. Nick Cox reports that Kongsbreen retreated 400 metres in 2016, that's over a metre a day, over four and a half centimetres an hour. That's terrifying. Why would you go? First, do no harm. When I originally began to think about this book, wondering where I might go, a friend suggested that one of the places be imaginary, a terra incognita dream a speculative mirage. At the time, I thought it was a lovely idea but wasn't sure whether it would fit. It turns out it was at the heart of the book from the beginning. Jenzebu, Myzanadu, Godot's Shed, Hotel California. You, you mentioned this a little in your book and at the time of recording recently, we've seen images of the summit of Everest with a queue of climbers trying to reach the summit within these narrow windows of possibility that they that they need to aim for. What do you think those images say about today's sense of wilderness or even about our imagination or, or lack of it when it comes to the planet? I think there's a there is a dearth of imagination. You know, we're going for the greatest hits. Um, it's also terrifying the sense of entitlement, the fact that you have money and you want to go. But most of all, it's terrifying from the point of view of this idea of wilderness, the fact that wilderness has been juiced and it's been changed and it's been trampled and there are whole industries and whole you know people and nations and cultures rely on tourism and they rely on um, people from abroad coming to see what they've got but it's got to be managed and I don't think you can have wilderness with queues of people on top of it in the same way that you can't have um wilderness with a motorway going through the middle of it it nothing happens in isolation um but most of all it just makes me very sad um and i know that there's i mean we're very um i think last week was the anniversary of the moon landings 
and um, I mentioned this in the book, um, Neil Armstrong was asked about sense of quest and he was saying that it's, it's in humankind to sort of like swim against the current like salmon, you know, these are things that, you know, we, we have in us to do at a deep level. Um, I don't think that to be, should be to the detriment of our world. And I think that we need to really take a good hard look at how we are approaching this. I'm not saying that exploration is bad. Exploration is sometimes incredibly important to gain knowledge, but there's really nothing for us at the top of Everest anymore. Dan Richards, thank you for writing Outpost. It's moving and wonderful and important. And, and thank you also for being on Beneath the Stream. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Revolver or Sergeant Pepper? Um, probably Revolver. Hunky Dory or Ziggy Stardust? Probably Hunky Dory. Uh, Kate Bush or Björk? Um, Björk because I like the live experience. Dylan Thomas or Robert Frost? Dylan Thomas. Annie Dillard or Gretel Ehrlich? That's quite tricky. Um, I think Annie Dillard because she's written more books. Tom Waits or Bruce Springsteen? Tom Waits. For no man. By the way, when you're dead, we'll publish the lovelorn travel writer in a shepherd's hut diaries in full. Great. Yeah. Great. Because I think, you know, we'll be looking... Well, you could just publish them, but then I would die. Well, I mean, well, socially. Uh, <laughs> you know. Well,